You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 39, Control. What are we talking about today, Kim? Why does anybody do anything? (laughs) Why does anyone do anything? That's a little broad, isn't it? Ah, but, you know, (laughs) from a neuroscience perspective... And isn't the answer for peanut butter cups? (laughs) No, I do like peanut butter cups, but we're not going to talk about external motivations today that people have. We're going to talk about the different parts of our brains and how they sometimes compete for control over what we do and think at any given moment. Oh, yes. Okay. So the brain's control system. Mm-hmm. So have you ever been torn between two options? Like this morning, I was like, do I want a bagel for breakfast or do I want eggs? Like there are two things you do, you could do, and you want both of them. Yeah, that happens all the time. Well, I can tell you that sometimes it's because there's different parts of your brain that want the different options. And so how does your brain pick one over the other? Well, slow down. We will get to that. But first, we're going to, you know, obviously for our listeners, too, we're going to talk about the basics. So first of all, just about anything you do from moving your arm to thinking about peanut butter cups is stored as a procedure in a region of your brain known as the basal ganglia. And basal means bottom. And ganglia is a fancy word in neuroscience that means a collection of cells um, that work together to initiate some kind of behavioral or emotional or cognitive event. So what does it mean that the procedures are stored in the basal ganglia? Well, it's it's like, I don't know, like your CPU, it stores thousands of routines or instructions for like how to think about doing this or that, like moving your arm or um, walking in a, in a straight line. So it's thinking, doing all those, um, you know, complex things that humans do. So the so the the instructions for th- doing something like a physical motion, but also thinking about something, that's all in the basal ganglia. Yeah. So if you want to add, say, two numbers, the instructions for how to do that are actually in the basal ganglia, even though you might entirely do it in your head. Now, the basal ganglia also has information about how to play the piano and other physical actions, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. Thanks for listening, everybody. Remember to like and subscribe. And uh, <laughs> this has been Minding the Brain. No, 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 no. There's more to it than this. <laughs> yes, of course. There's. Okay, Mike, you can stop the music. Thank you. Did you think the brain was going to be that simple, Jim? (laughs) It's the basal ganglia. (laughs) End of story. (laughs) Yes, I know it exists in like fish and other (laughs) earlier uh, ancestors, but it is much more complex in humans. So although the codes for actions are stored there, other parts of the brain sometimes actually have control over it. Is it just a tool that the other brain areas use? No, not really. The basal ganglia can sort of act on its own, too. And that's because it is one of the earlier brain regions that other brain regions, as humans evolved, started to link in the basal ganglia with their own control sources. So uh, it's the source of our habits, let's say. So... I'll take an example of, uh, let, you know, this is in a post-pandemic time. Uh, let's say driving from work, right? Usually you go home and you have a pre-determined uh, route that you typically take, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say, for example, you have a dentist appointment. If you don't concentrate on going to the dentist, you might find yourself driving home anyway. It's like going on autopilot. 
Right. So when your conscious mind is distracted, you're going to fall back on your habits, which in this case would be driving home. Right. Uh, so in this case, your concentration can, in fact, override your habits. But if your mind wanders, the habits will take over. And I'm sure we all uh, can think of times where that's happened to us, right? We have, right. Uh, we're doing something on autopilot and suddenly we realize, oh, shoot, I'm already at home and I meant to go to the gas station. Right. So left to its own devices, the basal ganglia will just keep you behaving uh, whatever your whatever you habitually do. Right? That's right. Yeah. So even though everything you can do is in the basal ganglia, what you actually end up doing at any given moment is a function not only of just the basal ganglia, but all the other influences from other systems. Because the basal ganglia not only has a number of outputs, right, primarily the motor centers, but also has a number of inputs. Okay, great. So I want to get back to habits later, but let's just have an overview. What are the other relevant brain systems that uh, can you know influence the basal ganglia? Um, okay, so we're going to talk about uh, habits, the cognitive control system, the mind wandering system, and the reward and the pleasure systems. And that's all, huh? There are more, but obviously those are just the basics. Okay, no. All right, Mike, no, stop the music. We're not, we are not done. Jeez. Okay, so let's get back to back to the cognitive control system. Right. So that concentration thing I was talking about is normally associated with like slower, more deliberate, conscious thought. It's more effortful, right? We're we're kind of consciously aware of it, right? Yeah. So let's call we'll call that the cognitive con the cognitive control system. It's not a great name for it, but it's it's the thing that we usually are talking about when we refer to willpower or executive control, reasoning, goals, uh, and your ability to resist uh, impulses. That's right. So if anybody needs like an example, I'm sure we've all thought about, you know, uh, controlling our diet, let's say eating healthier or going to the gym, right? We all have those impulses to sloth out on the couch uh, or eat popcorn or peanut butter cups. Um, but if we're in a state where we want to, say, control those impulses through diet or regular healthy exercise, let's say, we might want to try to overcome those impulses. And the processing of that normally happens or happens mostly in what's called the cortex, uh, which is the outermost layer of the brain. It's literally cortex means like the bark of a tree, right? So if you touch your head at any point, you're feeling your skull just beneath the surface of your skull. There's layers of um, thin little tissues. And then between those tissues and the, uh, well, after the tissues then is your actual cortex. So it's that kind of, if you imagine your brain, that wrinkly, looks like a walnut, uh, wrinkly layered appearance, that is your cortex. And and it's, it's what most people tend to think think of when they refer to themselves like the the i um i am hungry uh is you know so your cortex that's guiding that sense of themselves what do you mean by that like so when people say i what do you mean that they refer to, they're referring to their cortex and not like their whole brain for example well think about okay you peanut butter cup example imagine i ate if you said i ate more peanut butter cups than i wanted to there are two eyes in that sentence who are they? <laughs> right. Okay. Right. <laughs> it's kind of like saying my body ate more than my cognitive control system <laughs> thought it should. Right. And that's, you know, we can all going back to that example, right. Of trying to eat healthier or start an exercise routine. Oh, I should have gone to the gym, but I didn't. Right. There's how is it that there's two people there? Right. I see. So the cognitive control system 
uh, is the most goal-oriented part of the mind. So if you have a goal to lose weight, then the cognitive control system can be aware of that goal and try to inhibit um, your desire to eat peanut butter cups or something. And it's it's more um, related to long-term goals and things that you're planning than the other brain systems. That's right. And the ability to resist the impulses is really important. Uh, in fact, it has more inhibitory connections to the rest of the brain than excitatory inputs, right? So what I usually say is that most of the brain at any given time is inhibited, and it takes a lot of stimulation, either internally or externally, to overcome that degree of inhibition. So you mean that when the cortex sends out information, it's mostly quieting and shutting down the other parts of the brain? Yeah, kind of. It's, you know, the cortex, this cognitive system, it's what keeps us from acting on our so-called animal impulses all the time. And what we often call willpower is the cognitive control system's ability to get a kind of a control on our actions. And it's competing with all your other systems, right? People with more stronger control systems tend to get better grades, they are more healthy, and they enjoy a lot of other benefits because of this ability. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I think certainly in like 2021, right? The, you know, how when we look at our society and our culture today, a lot of our success in our, in this world requires doing hard things now for a benefit that is way down the line. Like imagine mm. even, I always think about like going to university or higher education, right? We toil away uh, for many, many hours, weeks, years in order to get a degree, which we hope will allow us to have gainful employment somewhere down the line, right? Or mm. if we exercise, that's, you know, for some people it's to look good. For other people, it's to, to stay alive and to stay healthy for a longer period of time, right? And and the cognitive control system is the only one of these control systems in the brain that can really make that happen. Hmm. That said, I do want to caution and say, you know, I really want to make sure people know that uh, your cognitive control system can be weakened by a number of factors, including lack of sleep. Think about how you feel when you've, um, you're completely sleep deprived. It is a lot harder to resist those impulses to do nothing, to sloth and to eat horrible food. This is why shift workers are um, very much susceptible to a lot of uh, deleterious or negative health healthcare outcomes, right? Drugs, right? When we consume mm -hmm. drugs, particularly alcohol, which has a very strong action on that cortex, it, may, it really, really disinhibited, disinhibits your cortex. And also chronic drug use, right? So this is another thing. And I do want to make sure like a lot of people tend to think addiction is because, oh, if you just wanted it hard enough, uh, if you just had the strength, you would actually be able to quit drugs. Well, what happens is that over time, continued drug use, and I would even argue continued behavioral addiction, like gambling, sex, um, food addictions that we talked about in a previous episode, those things are really good at weakening that, that cortical control over those lower brain regions. Stress is another thing, right? When we're hugely stressed out, it's really hard um, to make reasonable or, or to plan well, to solve problems. And the last factor I want to talk about is um, age. Over time, we actually get cell matter loss in uh, those uh, front parts of the brain that is in the cortical in the cortical region, and so um, you might know folks that are in their uh, sun their twilight years, right? That are they're very rigid. They they have a hard time um, getting out of their routines, and a lot of that is because of the, the loss of those cells 
in those key brain regions. So we call this willpower, but I do want to make sure people know that willpower can become eroded through things like disease um, and all those factors I mentioned above. Head injuries is another example, right? People who sustain um, um, like a mild traumatic brain injury or even severe traumatic brain injury to parts of the cortex, this can result in these disinhibited um, behavioral symptoms, right? So it's important to recognize weak willpower is not a personality flaw. Right. Okay. So let's talk about habits and uh, bring it back to the, the basal ganglia. So to override a habit, the cognitive control system can step in, right? And it, it, it can kind of through its circuits, right? The, those inputs into the basal ganglia, it can sort of make it behave differently than if we were acting, uh, if it was acting on completely on its own. So where your habits might be trying to drive you home, your cognitive system can take control and make the other parts of the basal ganglia drive you somewhere else you need to be. But this, this cognitive system is a conscious system, and it can only really think about one thing at a time. So if you're talking to someone on the phone, it's very hard to keep this new destination in mind, right? That's right. And then your basal ganglia will be essentially without supervision, and it will drive you home. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the autopilot, right? And and this is particularly the case why folks who are really stressed out, like, uh, you know, lots of stress hormones actually function to decrease the activity of that cortex or cognitive control system from acting on the basal ganglia. So we tend to be on autopilot when we're highly stressed out, which actually has an adaptive benefit. The system is the brain in the system in the brain was it evolved in order for us to rely on tried and true behavioral patterns when we are faced with things that might threaten our survival, right? So that's when you want to be going on autopilot to kind of defend yourself. The problem is in 2021, not in, you know, the time when our brain was evolved or evolved with this system. 2021, we have stressors that we're facing chronically. And so we tend to, um, many of us, be acting on these so-called animal impulses on a fairly regular basis. Right. So habits are very important. Um, and I, I think that people should always be curating their habits because... They are going to be distracted, and if your habits are in line with your values, then you can think about something else and trust that your body is going to be doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Now, habits, um, they're built on repetition and reward over time. So, for example, if you're in the habit of brushing your teeth before bed or maybe when you get up, you probably have noticed that you don't actually make a conscious decision to brush your teeth at those times. You can be thinking about something else entirely, and your teeth will just find themselves getting brushed. Thanks, basal ganglia. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I, I got a good story about how habits can be formed purely by repetition. Uh, there's a, it's a case study of a man who had lost his ability to form new long-term memories. So he would just he would he would experience things, and a couple minutes later, he would completely forget them forever. Um, and he kept on leaving his house and going on these walks. And his wife was terrified because he would get lost. He'd have to like she'd have to try to find him. He wouldn't know where he was. So what she did was the wife took him on the same walk twice a day, and it was a loop around the neighborhood. So they would go out for a walk, and they would go. She would lead him on the same loop twice a day, and that always led back to the house. And after doing this several times, he started going on that loop without her there. So if he just like got up and left the house, which he was prone to do, he would just find himself going on that loop and coming back home and she wouldn't have to worry about it. So this is an interesting thing about how, like, even when you lose your ability to form new, like long-term declarative memories, your learning of procedural memories, right? And, and changing the habits in the basal ganglia are still intact. 
and so he would find he would find himself coming back and he wouldn't even know why. Yeah. He couldn't remember ever doing the route before. That's cool. That's very implicit memory. Right. I like that. And so yeah. That's it, just repetition. So I brought yeah. that up just just because it, it wasn't particularly rewarding to go on that no, walk, right? right? Just from pure repetition, a habit was mm-hmm. built in somebody without even like new memory. Yeah. And of course, habits can be formed with rewarding events as well. So for example, if you are a regular coffee drinker and you drink it with lots of sugar and even cream, or if you get one of those fancy drinks from Starbucks, um, the added, uh, you know, sugar and, and cream are pretty rewarding. Caffeine, I would argue, it's it activates your attentional systems, but, um, and it can be considered rewarding, but it's not necessarily addictive. And we can have a whole podcast episode on what isn't addictive. And I do believe caffeine isn't addictive, uh, but it's habit forming. Um, but those added elements can really make it easy to get in a habit of drinking it. And my sister right now is in fact, um, she's gotten into the habit of having dessert every night and she's trying to get out of that habit. Mm. Um, and what she's doing is, uh, I think, and I told her it was really smart is instead of just cutting it out, um, because then the brain is going to start anticipating dessert. And when that doesn't happen, you're going to have a craving state and potentially like hypoglycemic withdrawal if it's over um, a significant amount of time. And so she started replacing, let's say, ice cream with like freeze dried um, berries or something. So it's something a little bit sweet, but isn't as caloric as, say, the ice cream. And I gave her the suggestion as well, like maybe go do 10 push ups or walk around the block for five minutes, because then you're engaging in that replacement activity where you're giving that same blip of dopamine into the brain, um, but you're not, you say, eating um, a hot fudge sundae, which, right. you know. That's, that's really smart because mm-hmm. your habits never go away. Mm-hmm. Like they are always there waiting to be triggered again. Mm-hmm. And so if you like have dessert every night at eight, say, um, you can resist it at eight. And then at 8.05, you're going to have to resist it again. Yeah. And at 8.10, you're going to have to resist yeah. it again. And so um, the studies show that like if replacing it, like when I get the craving for ice cream, instead I'm going to do this, right? And, yeah. and this is where I think it's really helpful for people to think about like what is that satisfying, okay? So uh, maybe somebody gets a donut every day at 2. Are you getting that donut because you're hungry or because you're bored or because you, you know, Whatever. And, and depending on what that is, you might replace it with a brisk walk or talking to a friend or a black coffee. And but but like saying having a like an intention in your mind every time I want to do this habit, I'm going to do something else. That's um, that's a that's a great way to replace a habit. Mm-hmm. This is why I don't really like the question I get sometimes the news people. They say, how long does it take to form a habit? Um, and it's it's really easy to form a habit for something that's really rewarding. <laughs> okay, like It's mm-hmm. not hard to get into a habit of sh- a sugary coffee every morning. And it's much harder to form a habit for something that is unpleasant, like doing burpees for half an hour, for example. Whoa, um, slow down. Tex, okay? I like doing burpees, admittedly, not for half an hour, but I do like, <laughs> anyway, I do like doing, <laughs> but I, I, I get your point. I think it is, you know, and I also hear often, and I'm sure you get asked this question every January 1st, right? How long does it take to break a habit? Um, and I think there's a lot of like, like these pop psychology claims, oh, it takes 21 days or X number of behavioral events to form a habit or break a habit. But in fact, some evidence suggests it's a huge range and it really has, there's a lot of independent factors that contribute to this. Like I think one study said it took from 18 days to 245 days uh, (laughs) or 254 days to to form a new habit. So 
you know, all that is to say, be skeptical, folks, and always turn to listening to Mind of the Brain for your top uh, science evidence. Just kidding. Anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> now there aren't habits for everything, right? Like they're, you know, that's just impossible. Right. Because because you haven't been in every situation. So when you're in a brand new situation, the part of the reason that you're you're, you're very conscious of that new situation is because your basal ganglia is sort of like, I have no idea what to do here <laughs> because yeah. it, is, it hasn't been in that situation before. Um, so your cognitive control system is recruited to help figure it out. Now, habits are triggered by, they, they, they have their triggers, and I made up a mnemonic, which I love to do, as you know. I made up a mnemonic mm-hmm. device to help people remember what the kinds of triggers are, and it's H-A-B-I-T. That's the mnemonic. <laughs> So, uh, habit? <laughs> habit. Isn't that good? Oh my God, it's going to be so hard to remember. So, <laughs> so wait, so, what does it stand for? What have you so done H, here? H, H is the biggest stretch, <laughs> but H is the humans you're around. So, just being around certain people can can um, make you engage in a habit. And I think, uh, don't they tell like um, people trying to recover from addictions to not hang around the people that they used with, for That's example? That's right, yep. Yeah, yeah, I like it. So humans are around. When you're around this person, you drink, or when you're around this person, you do whatever. The A for habit is the activity you just engaged in. So putting on your pajamas might trigger brushing your teeth, right? Um, coming home might trigger you going to the the, the candy uh, <laughs> the candy drawer or something like that. Uh, B is for bearings. That's location. So sometimes people uh, can have a habit triggered by where they are. So every time they're in a particular place, they do a particular thing. The I stands for internal states, and that is like when you're hungry, you do something, or, or when you're, you have some sort of, yeah, yeah, stress. When you're stressed, you you eat or you don't eat or you, you know, um, snap at people or whatever. Uh, and then the last one is T for time of day. It's the time. So certain people, you know, we have habits sleeping, for example. We, have, we, we habitually fall asleep and wake up often a similar time every day. Um, and also meal times are often triggered by um, the time of the day. This is brilliant. I actually, I love it. I, I think you should be sharing with, I don't know, I think with some of my friends. I think I should make a podcast episode and put it on there so people can Wait a second, it. what are we doing now? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's good. I like it. I'm going to use it in my lectures. I will, um, cool. of course, uh, TM, trademark, Jim Davies. It's not trademarked. It is. This is, this is public science. Anyone can have it. Fair. Good point. <laughs> so habits, they're not necessarily goal-oriented. Like they, well, they can be. Um, yeah, they're goal oriented, right? Not necessarily reward. Like I'm confused. Like some are innate. You're born with them. Some part of natural development. Others are learned. Then they're very important. Right. But I don't yeah. like, would you say they're goal oriented? No, I say they're not goal oriented. They're, they, because having a, um, the, the okay. habits, are, yeah, the habits are triggered by those things that we just talked about, but they are not triggered by goals. If you are acting because of a goal that you have in your head, yeah. then that is the cognitive control system and it's not habit. You. Like, so what you might do is you might have a, um, you might have a goal to like uh, save money. And so every day you throw a couple dollars into a jar and eventually that might become habit. But by the time it becomes habit, mm-hmm. you're no, no longer doing it because you're activating that goal to save money. Mm-hmm. Right. So the goal orientedness is based on, that's what the cognitive control system uses to try to install a habit, right? But habits are not particularly sensitive to goals or they're, 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 they're the things that work when there isn't a clear goal or reward around. You know, I, I think there is some data that's that came out from um, a group at Cambridge that actually showed that uh, there was um, like these chained events that led to a goal that became habitual 
if you disrupted one of those chain events, it, it disrupted the goal outcome, if that makes sense. Like it is, it's a highly complex, but I think, I think there's still always a goal in mind, whether or not it's conscious or not might be questionable. Do you know what I mean? Um, I think that's, that might be true. I mean, this is, this really depends on what really specifically we mean by goal. Mm. Um, and so what I'm talking about with goal oriented behavior is when you, your mind is using a stored goal and it is trying to reduce like the difference in the world from the way it is to the state where the goal would be achieved. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you are like, um, so if you're not considering like the eventual end state that you're going toward, if it's not being brought to mind, if it's not being activated in some way, then I'm saying that you, it's it, you can only say it's goal oriented in retrospect, right? Uh, like, yes, I have I have the answer to this. I think it only becomes consciously aware when the, that interrupt when it's interrupted in some way, right? Like let's say you're you're taking out a cigarette out of your package and not without even thinking, and you go to light it up and you, your lighter is not working. Right. That's when you become conscious. Oh, I wanted a cigarette like uh, heavily nicotine dependent individuals will report this, that they're often lighting a cigarette before they're even consciously aware of it. But let's say there is no lighter in the fluid in the lighter. Then they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm here looking for a cigarette. Right. Right. So if the lighter if the lighter works, then the habits, they they just go ahead and light the cigarette and you just start smoking without having a goal to have a cigarette. That's what I'm trying to say, right? Like you. it's it's more it just chains one event to the other, mm-hmm. but the the basal ganglia doesn't know where it's going. It's not it's not a teleologically oriented right. You know, system. Right. The whole point right? of it is to be released right. from the exactly. control. Right. Uh, exactly. Yes, yes, to free you yes, up from the goals, right? Yes, so yes, so yes. what I like to say is that if you have if you or if you engineer your own habits, if you curate them and engineer them so that they are in line with your goals. Yeah, right. right then you don't have to be consciously thinking about your goals to make them work for you. You'll just find yourself losing weight, saving money, doing, you know, writing papers. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could? (laughs) Right? If we could what? (laughs) We could do, like, yeah, no, I mean, how often as humans do we exist, like, we have flawed lives, right? Right, well, I I mean, I'll tell you something I did lately. Like, I I wasn't getting enough vegetables, and so I just decided to um, have vegetables with breakfast. Now, breakfast is a really important, um, or it's a great place to have habits because most people's mornings are more regular than any mm-hmm. or any other part of their day. Mm-hmm. So what I was doing is I would just take like a, a chunk of bok choy and cook it with my egg and I would just eat like egg and bok choy and it became a habit and I was getting my vegetables without having to think about it every day. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, like yeah. it started off as goal oriented, mm-hmm. but eventually it's just like, oh no, I throw, I just cook bok choy every morning. It's just what I do. Mm. Right. Jim, you're so, you're just like life hacks. <laughs> Life hacks. I, with, I am, I am. Life hacks with Dr. And it's so Davies. important because one estimate says that like 40% of what we do is habitual. And yeah, so let's let's talk about your bubble tea habit here, Jim. Yeah, I'm thankfully over that. But uh, like uh, uh, for several years, I was drinking bubble tea every day. And I uh, calculated that that would cost me $2,000 a year. So I was in a habit of like drinking this every day. And it's like four to six bucks her mm. so that i was like you know that was sobering it's like okay i really need to kick this mm-hmm. so uh, yeah so <laughs> this is all to say if you have an expensive habit or a habit that ultimately doesn't improve your health right it's health it has adverse health consequences good idea to try to replace it and i love how you've talked about incorporating vegetables into your breakfast i think this will be very useful for our listeners and i'm putting it in the back of my brain or in my basal ganglia right now <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. So what, what's what's the next system we're going to talk about? Well, um, obviously, the reward system. Ooh, your favorite. Yeah. yeah. Wait, wait. Why is it my favorite? Because you study addiction? True. 
Yeah. Yes, I do. Uh, yeah, I can't. I can't. Um, I can't <laughs> localize one favorite part of the brain, but certainly the reward circuit is is pretty top. Um, and I do like the prefrontal cortex, which ultimately controls the reward system. Big fans over here, mining the brain. Big fans of the prefrontal cortex. Big fans, <laughs> although it's my prefrontal cortex telling me that. So anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so habit and reward, right? So both of these are really important in addiction. So yeah. Okay, go ahead. Uh, tell me about the reward system. Uh, okay, so the reward system is kind of that circuit in the brain that's sort of pushing you towards or paying attention towards things that are going to give you um, a, a rewarding outcome, right? So it's like pleasure or something. Yeah, well, kind of. Um, so the part, you know, the reward system was really um, our ancestors, right? That. Um, you know, the reward system started uh, evolving around uh, the time of the Paleolithic, right? It was really put in place so that when we encountered events that were important for our survival, then that system, the brain would become activated. And then we could be able to, as we further developed, be able to predict those events in the future. And therefore, it's it's going to be lighting up like a Christmas tree anytime we engage with things um, that may are presumably important for our survival. And now it's kind of generalized to things that are even not necessarily the case, right? So things like social media, right? If when mm -hmm. we engage with social media or going on our email, hearing little ding, ding, you know, these kinds of things do activate our reward system. But, you know, early addiction theories suggested it addiction and, and engaging in habitual rewarding events, it was all about pleasure. But now we know that pleasure is a bit more complex, right? So scientists have dissociated what we say wanting, uh, drug wanting or food wanting versus liking. And hmm. so the reward system is a combination of both wanting and liking. And this came from a seminal uh, theory of addiction uh, that was published in the 90s when I first started graduate school in um, drug addiction research. And so the, the scientists from like the 50s, 60s, 70s, even heyday of the 80s were saying, oh, dopamine's, all, you know, you, I've talked about this in other episodes, all dopamine is about uh, pleasure. And now we know that that's not necessarily the case, that there's other signals in the brain, things like opioids, which are our body's natural pain relieving compounds, and they also tend to make us feel really good. So things like endorphins, and also curiously enough, the endocannabinoid system. So the part of our brain that um, it's called endocannabinoid because it binds cannabinoid substances like THC. So this sort of cocktail of dopamine release coupled with opioids and endocannabinoids kind of, you know, contributes to this sense of both wanting um, and liking. We, we tend to think now that dopamine is more involved with the wanting and opioids and endocannabinoids are involved with the liking. And so, um, you know, when people engage in events like, let's say, drug use, right, uh, they tend to do so for two main reasons. Uh, number one, they're relieving um, bad feelings, right? So like anxiety or depression. It, and then the other reason is that they're doing it because it actually makes them feel good. But you can actually dissociate these two things together, right? So some people are actually doing something to relieve a compulsion, but it doesn't necessarily feel good. Uh, and then some people just do things like just to make themselves, um, it kind of relieves that, gets that sense of sort of pleasure. So, can you give me an example of, of like wanting without liking? 
Um, so I would say uh, hoarding behavior, right? People who collect things and don't like to throw them away. That's a good mm -hmm. example of... So they don't, they don't like feel pleasure at, at the hoarding. Correct. Or even... They just can't stop, right? Mm -hmm. So um, hand washing, right? We know that we need to wash our hands to keep clean. And then in people who develop obsessive compulsive disorder, they can't stop hand washing. Um, and they're engaging in it compulsively because it's actually relieving their anxiety about, um, in this case, getting sick. I, you know, I think some video games are like that. What do you mean? Well, some games are... Some video games are genuinely fun and exciting and they make you feel really good. Like I've played games where you explore vistas and you see these amazing things and it's really um, an enjoyable, pleasurable experience. And I think although a lot of games, I mean, they have to be fun at first or nobody's going to keep playing them. But I, I think some games are what are sometimes called Twitch games like um, Tetris or like uh, block clearing games or whatever. It. Uh, you uh, find yourself in a position where you're, you're still playing even though you realize you haven't been having much fun. <laughs> it's just like you can't stop doing it. Yeah. There's something about like this compulsion to just keep clearing blocks or something like this um, that I think reminds me a lot of OCD yeah. uh, symptoms like uh, hand washing and cleaning walls and mm -hmm. kind of things where you're just like you just have this urge to try to complete a task that never ends. And that's, you know, when people talk about games, they'll sometimes say they're fun and they'll sometimes call them addictive, you know, mm -hmm. but, you know, in a casual sense. But I think that's kind of what they're getting at is that it's it, it, it's not that it's super enjoyable. It's just that you just can't stop playing it. Yeah, so I think there is a couple elements here. I think some games, like you're saying, are inherently more pleasurable because they're interesting and you win things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and video game developers are very savvy at manipulating our reward system because they make the, the auditory sound that colors will flash, right? You get text on the screen that says, like, congratulations, right? So there's a mm -hmm. lot of these things that they use to kind of continue to suck people in. Um, and even in those games like Tetris, like, you know, when you, like, solve a, a line or whatever it goes smash and like there's a sound and boom right there the, so there is something satisfying to that but i do think over time I, I i hear what you're saying but i think it resembles what we tend to see in addiction which is that people start to use substances or start to play a game or start scrolling on their phone uh, to look at their social media news feeds and they start to do it for a couple reasons sometimes you know usually it is um for the the pleasure of it, let's say, and that of course exists on a continuum. Snorting cocaine is much more pleasurable, one would say, than scrolling on um, Facebook or Twitter. But over time, and that that we would say is is the liking, right? Like initially, it's yeah. you know we like it; it feels good. But over time, what we hear in the addiction world, at least, is that people like it less and less, and they want it more and more, right? So over time, mm. that liking is reduced, and it's more uh, the compulsive behaviors that drive, or compulsive motivations that drive the behavior. And we can see this in addiction. We can see this in multiple types of habit-like behaviors. To a lesser extent, things like OCD, because we would argue that OCD doesn't necessarily, people aren't washing their hands because it, it makes them feel good, right? So it is, right, you know, right. it's it's complex, but um, the reward system is certainly important, right? So when we engage in rewarding events, which are coded in like a part of the basal ganglia known as the ventral striatum, and ventral means um 
tummy. So it's like the bottom and then the dorsal stratum or dorsa uh, top, like they these cells are right next to each other. And the, the ventral stratum we think is like initially that dopamine blip. And then over time, when things become more habitual, it transfers to the dorsal stratum, which is more linked to these motor habitual motor patterns. So you do something, you get rewarded for it, you do it more often, and eventually it becomes a habit and the reward system doesn't even need to be involved. So that ventral system, literally the ventral stratum kind of goes offline. And in fact, dopamine levels in the ventral stratum are reduced in chronic addiction states. Interesting. So I want to talk a little bit about the term wanting, because in English we use it for a lot of things. And when we talk about the wanting and the reward system, it's really of a different uh, kind of wanting than the wanting of the cognitive control system. So for example, um, if you want to get a university degree and you're willing to work hard for it, that is the cognitive control system at work. That is not your like reward system wanting <laughs> a hit, right? Mm -hmm. um, the wanting of the reward system uh, is you know, has the kind of compulsive wanting that makes you like keep eating popcorn long after you're full and long after you've gotten uh, pleasure from it. And, and the wanting of the cognitive system is like a totally different thing psychologically. Yeah, good point. So the reward system can, of course, override your habits, right? So for example, you're walking home like you always do. Let's say, I know last time I said we were in the car, but let's just say you're walking home and you see uh, maybe a sign saying like ice cream for sale, new flavors, right? Uh, and your reward system is going to try to get you not to use your habitual actions and instead go to get an ice cream, right? And this is mm. because the other part of your cognitive control systems may be tweaked by things like, you know, the sign of the ice cream or some kind of internal hunger cue, right? And that will actually serve to alter the activity of the reward system. And so it kind of acts like a switchboard, right? So you might be going, you know, on autopilot walking up Bank Street, let's say, and you see the sign at, at the ice cream store. And, you know, the the cortex kind of, okay, whoa, the ventral striatum is active. Go there. Yes. So it's like this constant chatter between your cognitive control system and then um, your other uh, basal ganglia. So which consists, it's it's thought to be like a motor limbic interface. So it, it integrates your um, your emotions to drive your motor output. Oh, cool. All right. Well, that's a reward system. And what is up next? The mind wandering system. Oh, it sounds like it's my turning. Yes. This is the part where we talk about imagination. And Jim, <laughs> you're the expert when it comes to imagination. Okay. So when you're doing something that is boring or something you know how to do really well, you might find your mind wandering to think about the future, think about your long-term goals, think about some problem you're dealing with. It's commonly known as mind wandering. Um, and although it gets a bad reputation, it's pretty special uh, that we're able to do it at all. Um, not many animals can, and it allows us to focus on long-term plans. In French, incidentally, it's called um, de être dans la lune. So sometimes I'll say to my kids, Robin, est-ce que t'es dans la lune? Like you're in the moon, right? Because her eyes are just like glazed. She's off to thinking about something. But um, <laughs> just a reminder to our listeners that we do have a whole episode about future. So thinking about back the future, and, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so although thinking about mind wandering as an action that your brain does might seem a little strange, um, you know, we're talking about what is making the brain do this or that at any given time. And so sometimes your mind wanders, right? And so it's the mind wandering system that, uh, you know, is important there. So this is done by the default mode network, right? 
this, mm-hmm. uh, like I didn't really know much about the default moon network until I started my um, position at Carlton. It was the first time I really started learning about it. So it's fairly recently discovered circuit in the brain. And uh, scientists think it's activated when people are thinking about something other than the task that's in front of them. Right. But it's it's not the cognitive control system either. No, right. So the cognitive control system and the default mode network kind of work a bit like a seesaw. So if one is active, the other is less active. So this this has got to be relevant to impulse control and inhibition, right? Yeah. So if your mind's wandering, that tends to mean that your cognitive control system is relatively weak. So you're more likely to engage in um, habits or, uh, you know, those impulses because you're distracted. So your cognitive control system can't override those impulses, let's say. So if you're daydreaming about the beach at the same time you're eating a bag of chocolates, you might just go ahead and finish the whole bag without realizing it. Right, because the default mode network stole all the energy from the cognitive control system. Yes, that greedy default mode network. (laughs) Now, lots of mind wandering isn't great, though, because um, mind wandering, although it can be fantasy, it's also has a lot of anxious thoughts. Yeah. And like, you know, this is part of what we think is involved in like rumination and things like anxiety disorders or depressive disorders or even like sort of those intrusive thoughts that happen um, and things like PTSD. Right. But anyway, Mm. those are the parts, the major parts. Yeah. So so we got. Yeah. Those are the major parts. I mean, the default mode network. The thing is, if you're trying to override a habit. Right. But your mind starts wandering, then your cognitive control system can't override the habit and you're you'll end up doing your habitual things Mm -hmm. while your mind wanders. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I have a car metaphor to help remember and think about all these parts. Um, I can't wait to hear about it. <laughs> okay, so I imagine, okay, imagine your body's like a car and the habit okay. system is driving, okay? And it's just going to drive wherever it usually drives. It's like the autopilot, unless somebody else in the car talks it into going somewhere else. Now, the cognitive control system is, a, is an adult in the passenger seat who sometimes tells the driver where they should go because they have a better idea of, you know, the the overall goals of the system. But the cognitive cognitive control system can also enter into mind wandering and think about something else entirely. So think about the passengers looking out the window and and like not thinking about the car. And so the habit system is just going to drive the car wherever. And when this happens, uh, you know, the cognitive control system can't tell the driver where to go. Well, what about the reward system? Uh, So the pleasure reward systems, that's like a kid in the backseat screaming for ice cream. (laughs) So everybody's like yelling at the, the driver, the habits that, you know, the basal ganglia trying to get the car. And that's that's how I imagine the mind. Oh, my gosh. That's how I imagine the mind works. I love it. I, I love how you brought in all the metaphors, except for the peanut butter cups. Maybe that's what oh, yes. maybe what the, that's, that's what, what they, the habit system is driving toward. Right. Or the kids screaming for peanut butter cup ice cream. There delicious. we go. Yeah. Very delicious. Anyway, I love it. OK, Mike, you can cue the music for real this time. <laughs> <laughs> Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, funded in part by a Carleton SSHRC Knowledge Mobilization Grant, and made possible by Metabolism, allowing our hosts to turn lentils and peanut butter cups into podcast episodes. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. Minding the Brain.